Thanks for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. Our hope is that it helps you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. Well, good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. We'll begin in verse 6. Romans 5, verse 6 here in just a moment. If you're visiting with us today, my name is Mark. I get to be one of the ministers here at the church, and we're glad you're with us. We're in a series called Salvation Space, as Peter mentioned it a few moments ago. We're looking at these themes of salvation and how salvation is not just forgiveness of sins, even though that's beautiful. But what we want to do is take the book of Romans and show you how the Apostle Paul uses the teaching in the book of Romans to show us the layers of salvation and how each one of them is distinct yet important and how they all come together and fit really well. And we're using spaces in the world that help us understand the distinction between these phrases and these theological terms. So let me just take you where we've been. In week one, we talked about the throne of God. Salvation begins at the throne of God. It was his idea. It was his desire. He saw creation and what sin had done to his creation, and he responded to it from his authority, from his position, from his power and his reign. And he sent Jesus down to the earth to walk among us that he might bring salvation, that he might rescue the dying and lost. So we define the gospel as all of the work of God to fix a broken and dying creation. That's what the gospel is, the good news of a God and the many things he did to restore all that had been shattered by sin. And then we went from the throne room of God to week two. We talked about the altar and how the altar plays a significant role in salvation in that there was a mercy seat on the Ark of the Covenant that was in the Holy of, uh, Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the sacrifices were offered. And Jesus on the cross gave his blood. That blood was sprinkled on the mercy seat and it covered the sins of all who would believe in his sacrifice. So from the throne room to the altar room to last week, Elijah took us to the courtroom. And the courtroom is where the word justification comes into play. How, how the blood sacrificed on the mercy seat covers the sins so that we are justified before God and we are acquitted of our sins. Now, God does not look down and say that we didn't sin. That would make him a liar. But he deals with our sin. He confronts us in our sin and he brings a remedy to it. Sometimes you've heard the expression that's been said that justification means just as if you never sinned. And that's really not accurate. It's, it's memorable, but it's not accurate. What's accurate is this, justification is this, just as if my sins were paid in full. And this is what the blood of Jesus, the propitiation of Jesus at the altar, provides the justification of our acquittal from our sins that we can walk away and be found righteous, not pretend, but be found righteous because of what Jesus Christ did for us. So today we're going to move beyond our guilt of our sin, which is taken care of in propitiation and justification. We're going to move on to a new word this morning, and it's reconciliation. And our space in the world is a battlefield. It's significant because we look at it that God is reconciling us to himself. And where does that take place? It takes place in the midst of a battle. That you are regaining a relationship with the one you have fought against. Not a distant, let's not talk about this. So when I was doing grad uh, work, one of the reasons I chose the program at Central Michigan University that I did is many of the topics that were covered in this uh, master's program were things I was doing every day in ministry, like gender differences and conflict and change and persuasion and all of these courses that I thought, this is what I do every day. I need to learn to do these things better. Well, one of them was conflict. 
And since that moment, whether it was at Central Michigan University or Ozark Christian College or Great Lakes or, or uh, Wayne State, whenever I taught as an adjunct for these schools, one of the classes they allowed me to teach was conflict management. What I find fascinating is if I was teaching a seminar to you this morning, and I'm not, but if I were, I would ask, how many of you enjoy conflict and nobody ever puts their hand up? Which is really kind of a lie because some of you do enjoy conflict, you just don't want to admit it. Because deep down inside, you're like, that's kind of a broken part of me, but I'm really good at it, so you do. But anybody I've ever met says, I don't enjoy conflict, nor should you. That's not what we were created for. Dominating and winning at all costs? No, absolutely not. But conflict is a part of life. And yet most of us, when we're in conflict, we want to get out of it so quickly that we don't actually want to deal with it, right? It's like, let's not talk about that again. We had a fight, but let's not bring it up. Let's not have those issues become present for us again. So to understand the concept of how reconciliation is a part of God's plan, you and I have to go back and understand the problem that created the hostility. So here's what I know about teaching conflict management. Uh, You know when it started. There are very few people who, when you bring up a conflict in a marriage or between a child or with a coworker or whatever, very few people forget where it started. That's what gets us going, remembering that moment the conflict came into play. For instance, a few months ago, I went to the mall, and I was trying to find uh, shirts. Okay, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I'm going to be transparent this morning. I wanted, I wanted to find shirts that didn't suck to my stomach like saran wrap. And there's only two stores in the entire world that fit middle-aged men. And I don't pretend I'm these young guys. Heather's like, well, go to American Eagle. No, they they build them for kids that are built like V's. I'm built like a pear. It it doesn't work. I don't want to buy a shirt that says large and then it's medium around my stomach and it's embarrassing and I stand up in front of you all. So I have all these issues. I went to the two stores that I could find, you know, Pennies and Coles sells adult male shirts that aren't fitted for boys. And anyway, I came home and I couldn't find anything. And Heather said, I was really frustrated. And she said, how'd you do? And I said, I can't find anything. I'm so oddly shaped. And I said, I don't, where do I go from here? And she said, to the gym. (laughs) And that's when the fight started. (laughs) Little doubt where that conflict began. Now, any of you know my wife, I kind of made that up. It's not true. But sometimes it's easy to see where the fight starts, isn't it? When we look at our relationship with God, I have to ask you a question. Do you really not know where it began? Because it's not on him, is it? It's on me. It's on us. That moment when I knew that I was declaring war against God's rule. Don't tell me what to do. Don't tell me I can't have that. Don't tell me that's not good for me. It's also a a challenge to his character. Sin is rebellion, and rebellion is war in God's perfect right to reign. You see, Adam or Eve was told by the serpent that if she believed God, she was being misled because God didn't want her to eat the fruit of the tree because she would become like him. And we have been buying that lie ever since, that God tells us not to do something because he's scared if we did, we'd become his equal. Do you think for a moment God's concerned you'll ever be his equal? We declare war on the reign of God, and we've bought the lie ever since. But I want you to notice something significant. We're going to loop back to it in just a few moments. When Adam and Eve sinned, the devastation of their sin brought shame on them. Nobody else brought it to them. They brought it on themselves. They were shamed. What did they do? They hid. And I want you to notice something very, very significant for our theological emphasis this morning. 
when Adam and Eve sinned, they did not go looking for God. God came looking for them. Please notice this and cherish it. They didn't run back to God saying, we really messed up. We're so sorry. What did we do wrong? No, they hid themselves from God. And who came after them? God did. Keep that in mind as we walk through the process here of the kind of God we're talking about today. Adam, in fact, tried to cover his rebellion with justification, self-justification, the wrong kind. What did Adam do? God came and said, first of all, I love the fact that God came into the garden in the cool of the night. They were hiding in the bushes, covered themselves with fig leaves, and he says to Adam, where are you? Like God didn't know. He knew where they were, but he wanted them to say, why are you hiding from me? And Adam comes out, what's the first thing he does? Well, it's my fault. She, she made me. And, and God's like, really? But I gave you the authority in the garden and you passed it off to her. You can't blame her for what you gave up. And when he said to Eve, what did you do? And what did she say? The serpent made me. And he's like, no, no, she didn't make you do anything. And both of them stood there in their self-justification. But God came looking for them. They didn't go looking for him. Let's go to Romans 5, verse 6. You see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. Paul teaches us something very important and we need to to grasp and hold on to. In verse 6, he says, when we were powerless, from the throne room of God, he moved because there was nothing we could do. We could not rewind the tape and start over. Our acting like we weren't in the wrong changed nothing. Verse 6, we were the ungodly, unable to stand before God with any merit of our own. Verse 8, we were still sinners, found guilty on all charges, unacquitted, standing before a a verdict rendered on us that would be accurate and painful. And in verse 10, we were God's enemies. Rebellion against God is declaring war against God's reign and his character. Total guilt, total alienation, absolute hostility. There's no question. And to become reconciled to God It will only be because God came looking for us. We could not return to him. What is reconciliation? Very simply, it is the process of putting something back together that has been broken and bringing unity to something that has been disunified. When I think as a pastor about the number of years of doing this, I'll tell you it's marriages that get reconciled. It's uh, parental relationships with their children that get reconciled. It's friendships It's business partners. It's reputations. The the word reconciliation actually is an accounting term, meaning that it's balanced out to actually state what it is, and it's made proper and made whole. This restoration we're talking about, this reconciliation that God is doing came through the death of Jesus, where God brought spiritual harmony where there had only been spiritual hostility. He brought this together. It's a movement of God's mercy from the throne room to the altar to the courtroom, to the battlefield. It's only by the mercy of God. This is why Paul will say in the first chapter of Romans, verses 16 and 17, it is the salvation of God, not the salvation that I brought or the salvation that you and I thought up. It was his idea. 
But what I want us to grasp today and hold on to dearly is we have talked about the legal side of it. The legal solution to our guilt and our sin is justification. Today, when we talk about reconciliation, we're actually talking about the relational side. And I want you to know this. You'll never live your life for God if you only stay on the legal side. It'll just become a fact that you can move on from. It's the relational side that Jesus, through the incarnation, brought even as much as he brought justification. There is beauty in justification. There is so much depth in the forgotten part of reconciliation. The personal side. You see, because there's more that's lost in sin than our guilt. There's also something beautifully lost. So if you don't know, my wife and I, Heather, have two children. Uh, We have two boys. And they are very common in some of the best ways and very unique in some of the strangest ways for me. So as a parent, I need to confess this. When I would get angry, and I know that shocks you that I might, but whenever I become angry or frustrated with my boys, there always was this necessary separation. I think you understand. Sometimes it would be they got sent to their room. If they were disturbing the peace in the house and they wanted to act like a a spoiled little snot for a little bit, we'd say, you can act however you want. Just go in your room when no one else has to deal with it. And they would be separated for a while. Or if I got frustrated or angry with them to not say too much, I might leave the room and go outside and, I don't know, find a cat to kick or something. I would just find a a release for my outrage. And there was this period, I never kicked a cat because I couldn't catch them. But I I never did. So, so sorry. Just blew the point. Okay, so anyway, there was this moment of separation. I can't stop myself sometimes. There was this moment of separation, and there they were, and then they would reappear. Now, what was interesting is my oldest son... When he reappeared, we had this thing that we did without ever talking about. We acted like nothing had ever happened. We just put it away. That was an ugly moment. It was uncomfortable for both of us. We didn't like it. So we're never going to talk about that again. Now, my youngest son is totally different. He would drive me crazy because he would be banished to think about what he did. And then he would want to come back. I mean, he would be at the top of the steps. He couldn't even get in his bedroom. And he'd be popping his head out the door. Can I come back down? And his mom, the person of mercy, would be like, yeah, but just remember. And he'd come downstairs, and it would drive me crazy. Do you know why? Because that little boy would climb up in my lap. And he'd want, he basically was saying to me, are we good? And inside, I'm like, oh, no. I have a righteous anger right now. You were wrong. I'm the dad. I was right. I need to teach you this moral lesson. You need to understand, by not being in my presence, that should hurt. And he would just crawl in my lap. And then I began to ask myself, who's the adult and who's the child? And I realized it's me. And and here's what I want you to understand about reconciliation. God is not a God who looks at you and says, okay, I'm going to act like you didn't just go to war with me. God says, no, I want you to climb up in my lap. I, I I want to hold you and restore you. I took care of your sin. I'm taking care of you now. Isn't it a beautiful picture of salvation that often gets overlooked? That restoration and reconciliation is a gift? You see, Christ's barrier removes what Paul calls the enmity, this division, this thing in our past that keeps us from being close. Now, I'm fairly certain I'm going to get some emails from folks who are saying that I've really been hurt by somebody in my entire lifetime and I need to stay away from them to protect myself. You can trust that, but you don't get to hate them. You may not allow them back in to hurt you, but you don't get to hate them. And you try to restore what you can restore to the safety of everybody involved because we're broken people. But church, we're talking about an almighty God, aren't we? You don't have to fear going back. 
You don't have to fear crawling up in his lap and asking him the question, are we okay? Because he's going to show you how okay you are. This is what God does. This is the gift. In 2 Corinthians 5, Peter mentioned it earlier this morning. All this is from God. Please don't forget that. This is God's idea. So when the world tells you that God is this vicious, mean, autocratic ruler, you know better. Salvation comes from God or it would never come. It was all his idea and all of its goodness. And he says, this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ. A personal reconciliation. Hey, Adam and Eve, you don't have to go find God. He found you. He sent Jesus in the flesh to walk among us that we might know God and know that he came for us. But it's not just our individual relationship with God that's reconciled. Look at verses 18 and 19. On the screen, it'll say, and he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This is 2 Corinthians 5. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. What does that mean? Reconciling the world. Not only does he reconcile our personal relationship, but he does that for even a greater purpose, that he might reconcile the entire world. You see, God is looking for every Adam and every Eve. Jesus came for all people. Here's the truth. There is no man, no woman, no boy, or no girl who cannot be saved by the love of Jesus. It doesn't matter your religious background. It doesn't matter your ethnic background. It doesn't matter your gender. It doesn't matter economically or your education. This is not just for smart people or for dumb people, even though those arguments have been made historically about Christianity on both sides. It is about a father pursuing his children and restoring a relationship that comes in the midst of the battle. I picture a young child. We've all seen moments like this where a young child is is mad and doesn't realize what they're doing and in their temper tantrum reaches up and smacks the mother or father. I've seen two reactions to that. One is ugly. But I've also seen parents who just wrap their child's arms up and hold them tight and let them process the tantrum, but never letting go, never letting them hurt them, but never letting go and saying, I am not releasing you. I'm loving you. Even right now when you're furious with me, I want you to see that picture when you think of the restoration and reconciliation of God towards you. And he says, and not only that, but I'm going to do that for the whole world. I'm going to offer that same love and kindness to every single person. Does that mean that every single person is going to be uh, saved? No, because you have to accept the blood of Jesus. You have to accept the propitiation he offers to be justified. You have to have faith that the work of Jesus and his blood being shed is what you need. You see, when when God came looking for Adam in the midst of the battle, he provided protection and covering for Adam and Eve. Do you remember? They were in the bushes covered in fig leaves. And what did God do? He shed blood for them. He killed an animal or two. He gave them the covering of their skins. He gave a propitiation for their sinfulness. He covered their shame. He didn't say just walk around naked and live with it. No, he covered them in their shame. Do you see the reconciling work of God so consistently in Scripture? God not only knows what we need, he meets our need at cost to himself. And innocent blood was shed to cover our sin. You see, the work of restoration and reconciliation is to change your attitude toward him because his attitude towards you has never changed. It's to look at the cross and see. I notice a change in Adam and Eve. Instead of questioning God's goodness, they now trust his goodness, having seen that he not only spared them in their shame, 
And even though they were taken out of the Garden of Eden and that was closed to them, the paradise was closed because of their sin, God did not alienate himself from them, nor would he let them alienate themselves from him. He pursues them. He provides for them. And their attitude toward God becomes less. He threatens me than he becomes my fortress, my shield, my protection. You see, you have to wear the coverings that God gives you to overcome your shame. You have to wear the blood of Jesus that you might find reconciliation. What price does it take? Let's go back to Romans 5, verse 10. For if when we were God's enemies, excuse me, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? That expression, how much more, is crucial. It's worth thinking about this week. If God would come into the midst of the battle with you striking out against him and pick you up and wrap you up and protect you and provide for you and take you from the battle, if God would do all of this when we were not right with him, what might he do now that we are justified? What might he do now that we're reconciled? But church, reason with me today. God did not come onto the battlefield against his enemy because he was losing He did not surrender his power because he was losing. He showed his power because we were losing. He showed the power of love and redemption because he loved us while we were the enemy. This is Paul's point. And the expression, how much more? For those of you trying to get your life right, and what I mean by that is you're not going to surrender to God, but you're going to prove him wrong by becoming a better version of yourself. Repent, you can't. You have to surrender on the battlefield to receive the restoration that he's come to bring. The reconciliation to you and God is that you have fought against his character and his rule. Surrender. Because if you do, we need to celebrate. We are reconciled by the death of Jesus, but he's no longer dead. What does that mean? What does the resurrection mean to us? If you can accept the work of Jesus' death on the cross while he was dying, his blood being shed for you, can you imagine what he's got in store for you now that he's living? If he can take you from hell to heaven in one gracious act of mercy, what can he do with all the power of his resurrected being? If he can deliver you and forgive you from your past sins, your present sins, and your future sins through his death, what can he do with resurrected life? Don't settle on a definition of salvation in your life that just means you dodged the bullet. How do you live? And the Bible declares without hesitation that there is much more available to us in time and in eternity because he lives. Think about it with me. The death of the Christ, or the death of Jesus, his work on the cross, satisfied justice, propitiation. So he can declare you righteous, justification. So you can have a life of hope, reconciliation. God is building a model of salvation that is so layered and beautiful and intricate. Back to 2 Corinthians 5 and 19. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us, church. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. When I think about 35 years of being a pastor, the number of couples, men and women that have come to my office, separate and together, children and their parents, 
Fathers and sons, daughters and mothers coming in and sitting down, broken relationship, disunified, seeking some kind of reconciliation. I've seen business partners that have come to me. I've seen couples that have crossed lines with each other that are trying to, to reconcile and restore friendships and everything else, and they sit in the office. If I can boil down what I find myself saying most often is, it's go home. Now, don't go home and act like nothing happened. Don't sweep it under the rug. Go home and deal with the love that you have. See if that love is alive and reach into that because reconciliation is always premised on loving one another the way you love yourself. It's not always that simple. Sometimes going home proves that the relationship is gone. Sometimes going home proves that the anger is not recited enough. But at the end of the day, can you hear the message of Almighty God? Can you hear Jesus coming to earth as incarnated God, walking among us so that he might say, you, sister, can go home. You, brother, can go home. You, husband, who ruined your marriage, you can go home and start seeking reconciliation. What does it take to be reconciled? It's, it's hard, but it's simple. It takes courage, it takes sacrifice, and it takes love. It takes courage, sacrifice, and love. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus demonstrated by going to the cross. Courage, sacrifice, and love that God might join in the battle. Pick his enemy up and love them home. You see, a few weeks ago, Elijah Daly and I were in my office and we were talking about certain things and he just made this compelling argument and it just moved the needle for me so much. We were talking about the church and he says, for all of the issues going on about churches harming people, which I'm sure is true, and all the issues that people have with the organized church, Elijah said to me, he said, but here's what I need you to know. It's in the church that the gospel message is communicated and it's protected and it's enhanced and it's nourished. And he was right. We are ministers of reconciliation, but I want to caution you. As much as Elijah's right, I want you to understand the priority. Paul tells us that our reconciliation is with God personally. When you're sharing your faith with someone and you're inviting them into the life that you're experiencing with God, don't just invite them to church because it can be missed. Introduce them to the God who moved heaven and earth to come find you. Tell them about the God who loves enough to die on the cross for our sins. Tell them about the God who desires to enter into the battle and instead of condemning us, inviting us into life and hope and peace. What does our world need today? See, I want you to know you can know for sure that God loves you and does more than tolerate you. God is not an irritated authority figure in your life who's constantly looking at you going, really, again? God looks down and says, oh, my child, let me rescue you. Let me reshape you. Let me regenerate you from the inside. Let me place a new heart where your heart of stone exists. He moves us from wrath to grace. And we can know for sure that God will finish the work Jesus died to provide us. If he can do this in his death, how much more can he do in his life. So we move from wrath to grace and from grace to glory. Romans 5, 9, and 10 again. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him to the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Don't miss the point. From the throne room, he came to seek and save the lost, all that was lost. 
He entered into the holy place and he gave his blood on the mercy seat at the altar of the most holy God. And then having done that, he walked into the battlefield and embraced his enemy and offered peace. The world that doesn't know our God makes the church and the message of the gospel a sin question. I believe it is actually a son question. Who is this Jesus? And what does he offer me? And if it is true, how much more is there to life than just the forgiveness of sins? This is the God we serve. This is the one who's worthy. This is what we should think on what is good and pure and just and right. The beauty of a relationship with God restored because of what Jesus came to bring the world. A salvation that's rich and beautiful. Let's watch this video. Imagine you are in a war, but you've been wounded and taken captive. In front and behind you are lines and lines of prisoners bound and marching toward their doom. But you can't see them. There is only darkness. All you can feel is the warm steel of the fetters and the dirt on your skin. All you can hear is the footsteps that are being forced by the clank of a chain. When all of a sudden, a new sound interferes. It's a song of a king whom the enemies fear. It's a feeling of hope that's deeper than skin. It's the words of a poet that speak of his win. It's a symphony of sound that matches the growing intrusion of light all around. The chains loose, the fetters fall, the darkness retreats, and when the light exposes what had been hidden, all that is left is a king, bound with our chains, our dirt, our darkness, led away, but only for a moment, until that light came roaring back, that song came streaming in, those fetters, those chains, that darkness left to bind that sin and shame. Sin, death, defeated. The light has overcome. Jesus is the king that leads us and we follow him from our tombs to his home, not in chains, but hand in hand, back into fellowship with the creator, back into relationship with him. We have been reconciled. Thanks again for checking out this podcast from Christ Church of Ornogo. We hope that this teaching is helping you discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. If you're interested in learning more about Christ Church, visit us online at cco.church.